Welcome everyone. If you could take a seat, please. We're about to begin. I'd like to welcome you all and thank you so much for being with us tonight. This is our ninth annual lecture that we have partnered with the Council for Life. And our hope for this event is that by hearing from great thinkers and influencers in the culture on the bigger issues in life regarding God, good and evil, the meaning and purpose of life, and the infinite value of every life, that we might be encouraged, inspired, and spurred on. We live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to honest conversations with opposing viewpoints. So we are grateful to those who are in positions of influence and using it for good. We've been fortunate to hear from many brilliant minds over the past eight years, including Chuck Colson, Eric Metaxas, John Stone Street, and Robbie George, and this year is no exception. This year's very special guest, guest is from right here in our own city, and we are thrilled that he has chosen to join us. Before I introduce him, I'd like to welcome Lisa Rosine, who is our president of the Council for Life this year, and she wants to share a few things with us. Great, well, welcome and thank you to Lisa and Kenny for hosting us tonight in your beautiful home and we are just so grateful for you both and for your Stand for Life. Since 2001, the Lord has enabled the Council for Life to host educational and fundraising events we have raised and donated more than $6 million. We have funded over 55 local agencies that benefit women in crisis at area pregnancy centers, youth education, life-affirming media campaigns, maternity homes, counseling programs for women who faced unplanned pregnancies, and adoption programs for birth mothers. We have also invited local and national speakers to educate our community about life we often share personal stories that demonstrate every life is equally valuable and redemption and restoration are possible. These stories of compassion prompt people to consider the life issue often for the first time. People in our community now pause and say, so that's what pro-life looks like. It's women and men. It's grace and mercy. It's compassionate. It does not have to be political. It's winsome, it's life-giving, and we are changing our culture for life. Council for Life has over 900 members made up of women, men, young leaders, and pastors. And tonight, we ask you to please stand with us as an advocate for life, and your dues will help fund the educational component of our mission. So please join us tonight. There's a table at the back that, can, that you can sign up. Also, please join us for our annual Celebrating Life Luncheon on Wednesday, October the 25th at the Anatole Hotel. Our speaker will be Jennifer O'Neill, who is an internationally acclaimed model, actress, producer, and philanthropist. So please see Jenny Gilchrist at the back table tonight to purchase a table or tickets to the luncheon as our printing deadline for our program is tomorrow, and we wanna make sure you're listed as an underwriter. Now back to Lisa, who will introduce tonight's speaker. Thank you, Lisa. Our distinguished guest is a Northern Irish theologian, analytic philosopher, 
and Methodist pastor known for his contributions to the philosophy of religion, religious epistemology, and church renewal. His undergraduate degree is from the Queen's University in Belfast. His Master's of Divinity is from Asbury Seminary in Kentucky, and he earned his doctorate in philosophy at Regents Park College at Oxford University. He has been the Albert Cook Outler Professor of Wesley Studies and Altshuler Distinguished Teaching Professor at Perkins School of Theology at SMU for the past 32 years. He previously taught at Seattle Pacific University and has been a visiting professor at Harvard Divinity School. He has written 18 books and numerous articles for various publications, including the Harvard Theological Review, Oxford University Press, and the Westland Theological Journal. He has been married for 48 years to his wife Muriel, has three children. He loves English Cocker Spaniels, country music, and the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> He is as warm and delightful as he is brilliant, and I am so pleased to introduce to you our very special guest, Dr. William Abraham. Well, let me begin by thanking Lisa for that marvelous introduction. And I've had such a good time tonight that I'm ready to go home. <laughs> I mean, the wine out there was superb. The conversations were wonderful. And if I was a Presbyterian, I would be singing. <laughs> I am just a non-teetotal Methodist. For those of us old enough to remember, I'm sure that you can recall vividly where you were when President Kennedy died. And I'm sure all of us can vividly recall where we were when the dreadful events of 9-11 happened. In the first case, I was back in Ireland, back in County Fermanagh, which is the great lake district of the north of Ireland. <laughs> and I was listening to Radio Luxembourg, which was sort of a thing for my generation to do. And in the second case, I was here in Dallas. I'd been teaching the evening before in Houston, and I'd casually remarked in a lecture that, please God, nothing like the terrorism that we'd seen in Ireland would show up in the United States. And the rest is history. The next day was astonishing. Now these moments are what I want to call epiphanies for us. They make us stop and think deeply about our personal lives and about our corporate social life together. And I can also remember vividly the moment when the issue of life or abortion became vivid for me. I was a happy, beardless graduate student at Oxford. When I initially tried to grow a beard, there were sort of patches all over the place where there was no beard. And by the way, when my beard did show up, I went home and my mother took one look at me and I shaved it off. <laughs> And I thought, that's the last time I'm going to be intimidated by my mother. And so now I have a good, long Santa Claus beard. <laughs> but I was a graduate student in philosophy at Oxford. And I'd taken up my first teaching job in the education department in the university at a little college called Cullum College outside Oxford near Abingdon. 
Now, I'm a kind of gregarious soul. I love Blarney. I love talking to people. <laughs> and I was having lunch with a group of students in the cafeteria. Then someone came to our table with a petition. And she presented the petition and asked those of us at the table to sign. And the petition was essentially a petition in favor of abortion. Now, I knew immediately that I couldn't prevaricate or mumble <laughs> or tell an Irish joke <laughs> or ask for time to consider. <laughs> the issue was right there staring me in the face. And to use the old jargon, I had to fish or cut bait. I did hesitate, but not to postpone the inevitable, that's to say whether I would sign or not sign, <laughs> I just wanted to ask the person presenting the petition a question. And the question was a very simple one. Did she think that the fetus was a body part that we were free to dispose of with, or dispose, dispose of, in the same way we could cut off the tip of a toenail? Suddenly, the conversation at the table stopped, and I waited for an answer. And there was no answer. There was simply an embarrassed silence. And at that moment, the issue was galvanized for me. <laughs> the fetus was not a body part. There was a life at stake. And to sign in favor of abortion was morally obnoxious. I have never, ever forgotten that moment. And by the way, I want to thank the Council for Life. That This is the first opportunity I've had to speak publicly on this issue. And I hope there's a, fa a forum at the back because I'm, I'm joining. <laughs> now at the time, <laughs> at the time I was teaching philosophy and ethics. <laughs> so of course the issue was a professional one where I had responsibility to think through the issues and help others to think through the issues. I'm an egghead, unapologetically. Now, since then, I've moved up the academic scale, and I've become a theologian, believe it or not. And that switch has only resolved my resolve, strengthened my resolve to support the pro-life cause in whatever way I can. Now, that admission, certainly in some circles, is a very risky one. Any kind of appeal to theology tends to be treated as suspect. So it looks as if I'm cooking my own goose. But let, let me leave my goose aside for the moment and come at the discussion from a very or more familiar angle. Why are most people opposed to abortion when they first think about it? The first part of the answer is simple. They consider it wrong to take an innocent life. And we take this as what we might call a platitude. Those in favor of abortion are not likely to challenge it. The claim is too secure in both common sense and in most moral theories about the foundations of right and wrong, and it's too secure in many ways for people to challenge it. So the discussion moves on immediately to a second consideration. The fetus in the womb is an innocent life. Put the two platitudes together, and you get the obvious conclusion that it's wrong 
to kill the fetus in the womb. Now, I think that this is the very core of the argument against abortion and in favor of life. And it is short and to the point, akin to other platitudes that we readily accept in our moral lives. We do not, for example, argue with someone who says that rape is morally acceptable. If I come across an argument in favor of rape, I think you would too. I will back up and figure out what's gone wrong with the argument. <laughs> Something's gone wrong with an argument that reaches that conclusion. Or take another, my favorite example. Suppose here I speak as a bog Irish learned Methodist at SMU. <laughs> Suppose we run across someone who says that shooting one innocent United Methodist bishop once a month, only once a month, for fun, should be presented as a petition to the next General Conference of the United Methodist Church. I have a long list of bishops that uh, <laughs> I would shoot, actually. I had dinner. I'd breakfast with one this morning, but not that one. Uh, by the way, uh, the problem for, e, for me a long, for a long time has been, why doesn't God bump off certain people? That's another issue. <laughs> Nobody in their right mind is going to take my proposal seriously and mount a counter-argument. They're going to think I'm joking. I've not just kissed the Blarney Stone, I've swallowed the Blarney Stone, and I need to be sent to the local psychiatric ward. <laughs> They, these are cases where we start from a basic assumption and argue from it in order to undermine any argument that would call into question its validity or its legitimacy. Now, you'll be delighted to know, <coughs> those are philosophers, this is a case of uh, sort of bog Irish philosophy at work today. <coughs> you'll be delighted to know that we have a technical name for this kind of intellectual strategy. The name is ironic, given the example I've just cited. We call those who operate as, as I've just noted, particularists, and those who oppose them as Methodists with a small m, you'd be pleased to know. A particularist says that there are certain propositions that we take as basic. We do not argue to them, we argue from them. And the small m Methodist says that we must start by having an argument, by having first the right method for securing any assertion. So we're not allowed basic commitments, like rape is wrong, or shooting a United Methodist, Methodist bishop once a month for fun is wrong. <laughs> the particularist, in contrast, insists that if you have an argument in favor of these assertions, you need to back up and see what's gone wrong with your argument. Now, all this is good fun if you're sort of a philosopher and if you're interested in this sort of intellectual inquiry. It's a disease that you catch, by the way, and if your children catch it, it cannot be cured. However, it is not a matter of fun if you're the poor Methodist bishop who gets shot. <clears throat> and this applies to the case before us this evening. It is not fun for the fetus to be killed in the womb. It is not a matter of fun that we deliberately and systematically kill the innocent in the womb. 
In fact, the details are shocking at this point in terms of the procedures involved and in terms of the numbers involved. Now, I leave aside here some of the gruesome practices involved, especially in the case of partial birth abortion. And I leave aside the known medical facts that babies in the womb can feel pain. The numbers are absolutely staggering. In the USA alone, the figures given by the Center for Disease Control tells us that between 1970 and 2013, which is where we have the best figures, we're looking at 51,888,303 cases. That's in the region of 52 million and counting. This, in my judgment, is a staggering figure, and we're dealing here with an extraordinary moral scandal. And that's why the issue will not go away. It has been no means been settled, and happily, there are those among us who will not allow this scandal to be swept under the carpet of human history. Now, I mentioned earlier that this issue came really home to me when I realized that an abortion was not just moving a body part, like a toenail. It is a deliberate killing of an unborn child. Now, you may think, yeah, he did swallow the Blarney Stone. This is just a case of rhetorical overkill. In fact, it's nothing of the kind. In the current debate in Britain, right now, the issue is presented in terms of the removal of a bunion. I kid you not. The president of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, Professor Leslie Reagan, said this recently in an interview with the Daily Mail. Here's what she said. If you go and get your bunion sorted, <clears throat> interesting proposition, you'd go to a consultation. Then you take a decision, and the doctor who was competent to undertake the procedure would sign the form as well, and you'd go forward. Now, some readers were so astonished that they checked with the Royal College and were told that the quotation was accurate and that Professor Reagan stood by the decision. Now this observation goes to the heart of another dimension of the issue, namely, that we should not for a moment consider a fetus or unborn child simply as one more body part. On this front, there is no need to appeal to theology, for the issue is settled broadly by science. Now, I won't bore you with the exact details of embryology, or for the point can be put very simply in terms a layperson like me can understand. The embryo is already a distinct human individual. Within the chromosomes supplied by mother and father, there are DNA molecules which provide the information that guides the development of the new individual brought into being by the sperm and the ovum. The embryo gradually develops all of the organs and their systems for the full functioning of a mature human being. And the crux of this information is that it is no longer possible deny, to deny 
that we have in place a genuine human individual, a member of the human species. Now, in a moment, I shall argue that we do not even need these hard facts to make a case in favor of life, but we need to face the relevant science and come to terms with the moral consequences of this observation. However, the appeal to the fetus as a body like a bunion dies hard, and we can understand why. Without this vision of the fetus, the appeal to the rights of the person to choose what to do with his or her own body, with his or her body, cannot get off the ground. This assertion of freedom of choice is central to the argument against life. So let me dwell on it for a moment. I want to make two comments initially. First, notice that the language of freedom, and by the way, always reach for your wallet, your intellectual wallet when that language comes up, the language of freedom and justice and other abstractions. The language of freedom to choose is really a euphemism brought in not just to distract us, but in order to appeal to a genuine commitment to freedom in the political arena. So the cause for abortion is hitched conveniently to a platitude that we readily endorse. Most of us are committed to a deep sense of freedom in the sense that we want the liberty to think through issues for ourselves, I believe in liberal education, and to decide what to do with our lives. I'm an Armenian to the core. We Methodists not only sin, not only believe in backsliding, we practice backsliding. <laughs> Take away my freedom to live in Texas and I'll not be happy with you. The kind of freedom involved here is the freedom to be free from coercion and tyranny. It is an essential part of the identity, identity of serious forms of democracy. However, suppose we apply the freedom to choose to cases other than the life of the unborn. Now, a thought experiment. Suppose, as a good Irishman, I think that the English are an inferior race. I sometimes think that on, what day is today? Wednesdays, right. <laughs> so, I freely decide to discriminate against, uh, discriminate against them, and opportunity arising, kill them whenever I can. It will not do for you or other persons to play the freedom to choose card at this point. Oh, you say, well, the English are inferior and a blight on humanity. I mean, the Irish are religious and it's impossible to make them moral, and the English are moral and it's impossible to make them religious. I'm not in favor of killing the English. I'm just pro-choice. I want people to have the freedom to think for themselves on these personal matters. So you're free to go out and kill Tony that pesky English student at Perkins. <clears throat> you would never allow that kind of reasoning. <clears throat> What's at stake here is the deep ground for all opposition, shall I say, to abortion, racism, and sexism. These err by ignoring the primary and essential glory that everyone by nature possesses. They substitute biological realities as the essential reality. So racists treat a person in purely biological terms designated, say, by skin color. Sexists reduce the person to the genitalia. 
Abortionists treat the fetus as a mere physical appendage in the womb. But in reality, the fetus is not like a toenail or even like a delicate organ, say like the kidneys or the heart. The fetus is a new creation that already has a mother and a father. And to cast the issue of one as pro or anti-choice is to set aside one of the absolutely critical issues at stake. The language of choice is an ontological travesty at this point. The deep problem with racism, sexism, and abortion is the visions of human agents at stake. They cut us down, essentially, to units of biology. So opposition to abortion, racism, and sexism, in my judgment, is a seamless whole. They all deny that we're dealing with genuine human agents. They appeal to a, they appeal to a right of pro-choice is simply a clever way to conceal what is really at stake in, in the debate. Now you may think, you've been very patient, this is long-winded. So let me give you a simpler way to get hold of what is at issue. Our use of the language of rights, I want to say, is governed by our deepest moral intuitions. Now please hear me carefully. We do not have a right to do wrong. Let me repeat this. We do not have a right to do wrong. At best, we have permission to do wrong. No one captured this more powerfully than Abraham Lincoln in the debate about slavery. Slave owners claimed the right to do as they chose with their slaves. After all, they brought them on the open market, they were feeding and taking care of them physically, and they needed them for the welfare of the economy. Therefore, so they had a right to choose their way of life and implement that way of life in their estates. But Lincoln cut right through this by insisting that we do not have a right to do wrong. We are merely permitted, at best, to do wrong. So those who advocate freedom of choice, they ignore this crucial insight. And of course then, they have to bring in the fallback position, as happens in the case of racism and sexism, that we're dealing merely with mundane biological entities. Now I'm not quite finished yet with the status, the topic of the status of the fetus. Suppose someone thinks that I've overstated the case. Uh, perhaps they think that I've smuggled in hidden theological premises about human agents being made in the image of God, or that human agents are so precious that they have been redeemed at incredible cost by the blood of Jesus. I virtually quote you, John Wesley. <laughs> he said that about the poor. <laughs> he says, how could, you, how could you be discourteous to the poor? They've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Amazing statement. Now, I do indeed believe these propositions, and I've come to them inch by inch as a convert from atheism. I was brought up as a Protestant, but anti-Christian. You have to explain that, and I'm not going to go into any great detail. My mother's generation, my father was killed in a bad accident when I was small, and my mother was left to bring up six of us. 
my mother's generation basically went to church and hung in there. My generation walked. And so Ireland now has to be re-evangelized. So President Turner, why don't we get a mariachi band and go to work? <laughs> and I came to faith because the Christian faith took evil radically seriously. That seems like an odd argument, but we're not engaged in apologetics here. <laughs> but I find the fact that there was the possibility that the demonic existed. That blew my mind and destroyed my materialism. And then I realized that the Christian faith took moral evil with enormous seriousness. So I have come to my deep convictions theologically, inch by inch, crawling along as best I can. And I want to thank SMU for making that possible. But I'm not appealing at this stage, even to theological propositions. And as I say, I'm not quite finished. So consider this possibility. I'm sitting in the backyard, and next door there's a swimming pool. I get up. I've been reading too much philosophy. I get up to stretch my legs, take a peek over the fence. And I see an object lying still on the surface of the water. I'm not sure what it is. And here are the alternatives. Am I dealing with a doll that's been left or thrown in the water by a child? Or am I dealing with a small child that has lost consciousness? I do not know, before I act, which of these is correct. There is genuine doubt. And what do I do in these circumstances? I immediately climb the fence and rescue the object, even though I'm not at all sure initially, shall I say, of the ontological status of the object that I've just observed. And the application is obvious. Even if there is a doubt about the status of the fetus, what's at issue is so momentous that we should do all we can to take care of it rather than kill it. Now, part of the frustration of dealing with a debate about abortion is that the issues really are quite straightforward. The human fetus is, when we face reality, already a member of the human, of the human species. We do not argue that we should systematically kill innocent members of the human species. So the default position is obvious. Do not kill innocent life in the womb. However, we have seen the discussion readily takes off into debates about the freedom of choice. And no matter what we say, we will be told these issues are a matter of opinion. When it comes to matters of opinion, we should be free to make up our own minds. And not only that, it's a private matter. It's not a public matter. So nobody, not a friend, not a parent, not a politician, not a friendly Irish professor with a beard, not even God, is going to tell us how to run our lives. I have a friend of a friend who's an atheist, and he said that if ever he came to believe in God, he would commit suicide, because he wouldn't even have God tell him what to do. That's an interesting kind of freedom. So let me take some time, stay with me here, to unpack 
this line of thought. What's at stake are two extremely interesting assertions. First, there's an appeal to what I'm going to call a really deep sense of freedom. The freedom in mind now is not, say, the freedom to avoid tyranny. It's the freedom to decide the deep meaning of my life and the freedom to live as I deem appropriate. Now, if you, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, I know when I see it, the right to privacy is exactly a claim that says something like that. So that's one component that's in play here, what I call really deep freedom, the freedom to decide the meaning of your life and act accordingly. The second is that there's an appeal to the principle that one role of government is to ensure that I have the right to decide the meaning of my life and act accordingly. Now, beyond these two assertions, there's an assumption, or rather, there's a suspicion that back of the debate about life, there lurks another deeper cause for concern, namely the direct or indirect appeal to theology. What is really at issue folk fear, in the end, is that religious folk, they're going to get control not only of the microphone, they're going to get control of government. And if you're a good Texan, you fought a revolution to avoid all that. <laughs> now, as I noted earlier, to bring up theology is to cook your own goose. At least that's a possibility. <laughs> Folk worry that the geese are there cackling in the background, and we need to kill the goose before it bites us. <laughs> so we enter here, stay with me, a fascinating discussion about the interrelation of law, morality, and religion. And the argument runs something like this. I put it in slogans. Public morality should be entirely secular and not religious, and the law should be morally neutral and not religious. So the worry here is that those committed to the pro-life position, like me, are undermining these fundamental achievements of modernity and seeking to impose their opinion, their partisan agenda on society as a whole. Now, let me concede immediately, indeed, let me declare unapologetically, that my deepest convictions about the meaning of life are indeed theological. Take, for example, what I believe about human agents. We are not merely treasure apes. Nice designation. We're not merely complex configurations of atoms and molecules. We're not bits of body parts topped off by a computer that we identify as the brain. We're not pawns in some economic system, nor mere waves in the ocean of a vast sea. I could give a lecture on every one of those. I think that we are created in the image of God, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we have a destiny beyond the grave, and that we have been redeemed at incredible cost by Christ, the Son of God. So I suppose I'm not just marginally influenced by theological commitments like these. Indeed, they pay a pivotal case in my deepest convictions. And moreover, I fully accept that these considerations 
make a difference to what I think should be the case as a matter of legal arrangements. So, to come back to my goose analogy, I have a very strong goose cackling in the wider considerations, and they make a difference to what I think should be the case as a matter of legal arrangements. By the way, the reason when I, when I became an atheist, I'd been going to church, uh, and I decided to think about it for three months. It was a very dangerous thing for a young atheist to do. And the reason I did that was because I knew it would make a difference. I knew that if I walked, there would be radical consequences for what I thought about a whole range of issues, including the issues right here before us now. So here's my goose. But I'm not going to hand over my fine goose to be cooked and eaten for Thanksgiving. And here's why. First, the claim that we simply make up our own account of the meaning of life is at best a half-truth. I refer here back to the idea that we have this so-called deep freedom to decide the meaning of our own lives. In fact, this is an entirely partisan metaphysical position. It's a vision of human nature that is the product of the 19th century for the most part. By the way, in part derived from Christian existential thinkers like Soren, the great, remarkable, miserable Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard. And if you want to see it laid out with enormous panache, get the novels of Jean-Paul Sartre. This is a partisan position. And it's by no means secure other than as the opinion of the people who express it. And I think it's completely false. <laughs> Second, if we make this vision of human life the linchpin of our morality, we're again working off a mere half-truth. Theories of life as a whole do indeed make a difference about morality, and they should. However, we have to spell out those theories in detail to assess their moral impact. And in some cases, I know this is delicate, but stay with me. In some cases, we do not hesitate to use our moral convictions to reject a theory about the meaning of life. To take a case in point, Basil Mitchell, one of the truly great philosophers of the 20th century, <clears throat> rejected a version of Hinduism because it could not deal with the challenge presented by the rise of Nazis and of Hitler in Germany. He had even gone so far as to learn Sanskrit in order to do doctoral work in Hinduism. And by the way, at Oxford, there was a graduate student who came to study Sanskrit. And they were to be interviewed by Mitchell. And they thought that, well, this is just a, you know, this is just an ordinary Oxford philosopher. It'd be an easy breeze in this interview. So they got in the interview, and Professor Mitchell picked a book of Sanskrit off the shelf and handed it to the poor soul to translate. He didn't know a word of Sanskrit, even though he lied to that effect on the transcript. That was not a happy occasion for that student. But he gave up his quest to become a Hindu and became a Christian, precisely because it failed as an account of the meaning of life on moral grounds. So there's a really tricky relationship here between morality and the meaning of life. But I want to take it a little bit further. 
The whole idea of a purely secular vision of law, in my judgment, is a dubious one. Our visions of what is legal are impacted by our moral convictions, and our moral convictions reflect deeper convictions about life as a whole. And here is the payoff that we need to consider. What we're facing in this claim that this is a private matter and it's your opinion and it's not a public matter, what we're facing here is a sleight of hand. Entirely private visions of life are being smuggled in and imposed upon us by semantic and legal fiat. The grand talk about freedom and meaning of life is a way of shutting certain options out of the public square in the name of what I'm going to call simply a bogus freedom. We are, let me use a vivid analogy, we're given a kind of contraceptive pill that will not allow certain concepts and thoughts to come to birth when we go into the public arena. And worse still, entirely personal relative opinions about life and morality are being smuggled into the law and imposed upon us. And I think we need to expose this sleight of hand whenever we can. Now, one way to see this is to ask which version of secularism should we adopt. <clears throat> Take secularism to be the equivalent of functional atheism, and you'll see the point immediately. Now, here, look. Suppose you were going to give me a different pill, a magic pill. <laughs> and I would wake up tomorrow morning, and I'd be a functional atheist and a secularist. Right? Hard to think that's possible, but... You never know what mad scientists could come up with nowadays. <laughs> the question the next morning is, what kind of secularist am I going to be? <laughs> what kind of atheist am I going to be? Am I going to be a Marxist atheist? Or a humanist atheist? Or an existential atheist? That sounds really nifty <laughs> in California. <laughs> or a Buddhist atheist? Or a Platonist atheist, highbrow? <laughs> Or just, let me just be an old-fashioned, good old-fashioned, unreconstructed, hedonist atheist. Let's eat, drink, tomorrow, for tomorrow we die. I have a friend in Belfast who's a highbrow atheist. It's good wine, it's trips to the Alps, it's Mozart, Mozart and really good philosophical conversation. <clears throat> That's an interesting form of atheism. If I became an atheist, I'd become an agnostic Jew. <laughs> But you see where I'm going. This claim about there being such a thing as secularism or straight up atheism is bogus. You've got to decide which version are you going to adopt. And then, then the truth is out in the open. Now what I'm getting at here is that we need to take seriously the fact, A, that our law is impacted by morality. This is an argument that's been made in the very first lecture, I think, that you had here. <laughs> law is impacted by morality, and our morality is impacted by our broader conceptions of life, and that means you can't keep the theologian out of the room, and we're going to be there. We have recovered our nerve, and we're coming back with a vengeance. <laughs> Maybe into... <laughs> Maybe even into the undergraduate curriculum at SMU. Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy. Now, 
there will be a whole other issue to take up here, which I'm not going to do, you'll be pleased to know, which is the whole place of what we call, what I would call civil religion in the United States. You talk about freedom of religion, don't you? What about the Mormons? Were they allowed polygamy when they came into the Union? Of course not. And I tell you what you're going to have to face, what we're all going to have to face in the future. I think it's going to be a great and interesting conversation. What are we going to do with the arrival of robust forms of Islam in the West? We're not going to be able to trot out these slogans about freedom of choice and freedom of religion and freedom of the meaning of life and so on. Because they, in fact, drive a coach in four through those basic assumptions by insisting that, in fact, the meaning of life is not like a novel that you make up could be an interesting novel. It's actually given by God. It's given in the Quran. And the law of God is going to override any and every human law. So we've now got a fascinating challenge on our hands up ahead. And I'll not live long enough to see it. But I live along, live along enough to actually see the beginnings of it. So what I want to get at here, what I want to get at here, is that the whole debate about the relationship between morality, law, theology, religion, whatever you want to put in there, we must not give up on that debate. And it's out there in the weeds, and if it's anything that I have to contribute to this discussion at this point, it's in fact, I want to raise that issue as being absolutely fundamental. Now, I need to draw my remarks to an end. I want to encourage those who are committed to life to stay the course and not be discouraged. If I've done that tonight, I'll drink a good glass of Australian wine before I go to bed. <clears throat> now, I have been clear, I hope, about two points. First, the fundamental argument in favor of life and against abortion is relatively straightforward and does not depend upon high-octane speculation or on an immediate appeal to theology. It is wrong to kill an innocent human being. A human fetus is an innocent human being. And therefore, it is wrong to kill a human fetus. We must never cease to repeat that and read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest that very basic proposition. Now secondly, which was the second half of my lecture where you've been very patient, there are other very important issues in the neighborhood and it's only right and proper that we deal with them at our leisure and with the level of intellectual expertise that is needed. So now to the words of encouragement. First, I have to tell you that the philosophical changes of the last generation, whatever you may hear about relativism and postmodernity, the philosophical changes are absolutely staggering and encouraging. We now have a fine body of literature making the case for life with clarity, with sophistication, and with rigor. There has, in my lifetime, been a revolution in philosophy. And it'll take time for this to work its way down into the system. I noticed that this week, Alvin Planinga, St. Alvin, as we call him, he started out at Calvin College and was a peeping Thomist who was looking at uh, the green pastures down in Notre Dame where they hired him, and he's just won the Templeton Prize. Let me tell you, that is revolutionary in terms of the contribution he has made. And he's just one of a host of numbers of philosophers who are now deadly serious about their Christian faith. And you need to know 
that in fact we're out there in the weeds and we're not going away. So we have now resources available that we have not had available, certainly since I was trained in the 1960s. Further, as was mentioned by our president, it is crucial that we continue every effort to take care of those who need our compassion and they need our resources because of the practice of abortion. There are alternatives to abortion that we can support and there is significant suffering and pain among those who have had abortions that we should resolutely address these challenges from a practical standpoint and absolutely intoxicated with love and care and I would add with the energy of the Holy Spirit. Third, I think this debate is winnable in the long haul. We should keep our nerve and become equipped to deal not just with the primary moral question in place, but with the wider network of issues that rightly crop up. Now I know that there's a long and arduous journey ahead of us. And we face determined and radically dogmatic opposition, not to speak of the financial issues that are at stake. We should, and surely we will, we will conduct our battles in terms of clean and honorable weapons. I borrow a phrase from a wonderful theologian called Adolf Schlatter in the 19th century, a great New Testament scholar. We will, we will go forward with clean and honorable weapons, that is, with truth and with love. And we should take heart at every step that we have seen in the right direction, however small. And what's at issue at the end of the day is the life of the innocent who have no one but us to speak up on their behalf. It has been a great honor tonight to add my voice first time publicly to those who speak up on behalf of the innocent. And I thank you wholeheartedly for your diligent and patient attention. Thank you very much. I gather there are times for, uh, there's a time, uh, short period for questions, uh, objections, worries, um, whatever you want to raise at this stage. And I think there are microphones that are around, is that right? Yeah, there's good lady at the back. So I'm, I'm a warm, cuddly Irishman, so go ahead. <laughs> So Dr. Abraham, what do you say to the argument that these children are going to be born into poverty and the government's going to have to take care of them anyway? 
So why not go ahead? Sorry, and take I'm not it? hearing your question. Speak up clearly again. So what do you say to the argument that people express? I won't say that that's my viewpoint, but I'm just making a rhetorical argument that these children are going to be born into poverty, oh. and so we might as well just go ahead and take oh, care see. of them now. <laughs> take care of children in poverty. <laughs> that's what we do. I'm afraid that's as far as we're going to go with that. I mean, there seems to be no balance between the taking of an innocent life and, and, and killing people because they're going to be poor later on. That's appalling. And any sane and civilized society, any sane and civilized network of churches are going to be on the ball and taking care of poverty. And that's precisely what the Christian tradition has done for a long time. And happily, also, communities do that. So that might be my initial response to that. Thank you. So when we look at public opinion data on abortion in the United States, uh, we often see that there's actually a lot of pro-life sentiment. A lot of people will embrace the label pro-life. Uh, and then when you start to ask them about specific difficult cases, right. their pro-life convictions collapse. So when you say, what if the mother was raped? What if there was incest? What if the child has a disability? All of a sudden, their support for a pro-life position just craters. Right. So there appears to not be either intellectual consistency or the kind of courage of moral conviction to sustain the position in challenging and difficult cases. How do you think we as pro-life advocates mm. can approach those kinds of discussions? That's a, that's a very, very difficult question, Professor Wilson. Um, I've noticed that as well. Uh, in fact, one of the very first churches that I worked in, in the bogs in Ireland, I had actually ran into that. Uh, and I was astonished. I was absolutely taken aback at how quickly the pro-life position went under, under these difficult cases. So, uh, I mean, I don't have any silver bullets on this front. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I just think, I mean, I, I, I just think that we've got to um, deal in detail with these hard cases. <laughs> and and there are very smart people and very compassionate people who are going to be able to think through and help us find a way to deal with that. Um, but I don't frankly, I mean, I, I frankly don't have a straight up answer to that question. Um, this is where sometimes I think that, uh, you know, as a theologian, the issue then is it's not an issue of what do I believe? It's an issue of what can I and should I do, and where do I get the moral energy and courage to do it? Now, some of that is going to come from the culture, and some of it is going to come from our families. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day that uh, we should be, not be surprised if this happens, and I think there's a real place for uh, a sort of deep spiritual formation <laughs> which is, I think, the besetting problem of the American church. We have a, a, the Catholic church has faced this resolutely. There's a problem of deep moral formation and spiritual formation, because this is often not a matter of the intellect. 
It's a matter of the will, it's a matter of the heart, and it's a matter of action. And that requires the grace of God. It really does require the grace of God. And, and so we're, you know, that, that's where I would want to go at this stage on that front. But I'm whistling in the dark, I fear, at that point. A very, very good question. Uh, sometimes people want to avoid the problem of killing innocent human life by saying that a fetus is not a human yeah. because it doesn't have sufficient brain function. And of course, people say that on the other end as well. And as I get older, that becomes more disturbing. But uh, how, do you, <laughs> how do you respond to that other than by, yeah. by telling them they're, they're being completely arbitrary? Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I mean, the, the really more broad question here is, if you don't take life from conception, where do you make the break? Now, this is where I think the contemporary situation is radically different from the medieval world. Well, with someone like Thomas Aquinas, I mean, they sort of, they didn't have the information that we now have. It is to me staggering that, in fact, at the moment of conception, there is all of the basic components and systems that go in for a human being, and it's all a matter of development, and it's purely arbitrary if you, if you call the line at brain functions. I mean, what, why should that be the line? It's entirely arbitrary at that stage. So I think, I think to be consistent at this stage, I will want to, I want to dig in hard and say that that is an entirely, there's no, there's no principled reason why we should do that, and that, in fact, there's no principled reason down the road, and you, it'll have enormous consequences as you say, for end of life as well. But I, that's not our problem for tonight. I'm just going to stay with this. So I, I think that the core there for me would be, uh, it's astonishing to me that life begins at this point. That everything we now know is in those molecules. It's amazing. It's absolutely staggering that that's the case. And that any move to try and have a point down the road, whether it be self-consciousness or being outside the womb or being able to be independent or brain function or whatever, it seems to me these are all efforts to try and draw an arbitrary line in order to make life stop uh, sort of earlier and start it at that point. And I don't find that convincing. I have a question. I have a question since I have the microphone. <laughs> Where are we? Uh, Thank you for sharing and taking the risk tonight. But my question to you is we hear every day that our young people on college campuses are hearing pro-choice, pro-choice, freedom, everything that you've said tonight. Do you have the freedom at SMU now that you're sharing to share? And are you shouting this from the mountaintops to all your students that you interact with to change the culture in Dallas at SMU? Yeah, the answer to that is yes. I mean, I, um, uh, I mean, one of the reasons I've come to love SMU, I've come to love SMU, is that this is a serious intellectual institution. And you know, my own training was in the Irish system and, and then in philosophy at Oxford. And uh, you know, anybody who undermines a proper liberal arts education, I'm an enemy. Uh, I'd be nice and friendly over a cup of coffee. <laughs> But this is especially the case, by the way, uh, in the humanities. And it's, a, it's a, a standard problem that shows up within theology. Uh, and one of the great things about Perkins School of Theology is that our DNA, and this is why I came here, our DNA is a liberal arts conception of theology 
And in fact, when I cooked the job at SMU, <clears throat> when I signed on, I wrote a letter to the dean. And I said, I will come under a number of conditions. It was a handwritten letter, actually. <laughs> and one of them was, I will have the freedom to teach whatever I think is appropriate and to choose my textbooks in terms of whatever is appropriate. And I have never had to challenge that, that, that uh, principle all my time at SMU. And, and so I think this is a, uh, you know, there's a wider issue about the young, about the younger generation. You know, the great thing about being in the last quarter and going into overtime is that you can step back and see these changes. Um, there's a wonderful book, by the way, by Mark Lilla uh, on, on liberalism, which I'd recommend to you. He's a remarkable social commentator, uh, a great scholar uh, connected with Isaiah Berlin, who's a Jewish atheist, one of my favorite Jewish atheists. <laughs> Um, and he's just written an absolutely searing account of what's happened in the universities. And effectively what's happened is that the uh, colonizing, I'll use this language, I'll use post-colonial post -colonial language, the colonizing of particularly humanities departments by people who have gone into the universities precisely to indoctrinate and to insist on a particular moral and political agenda is now having enormously bad consequences for education. This is Mark Lilla, who's uh, not a, a conservative in any way, shape, or form. And so the result is that, in fact, not just civil discourse is at stake. What's at stake is proper intellectual inquiry. Now, you've pushed a button that I don't want to let fly any longer, but uh, one of the great things of being at SMU is that precisely I have always had that freedom. I've argued for that freedom for my colleagues. And I will go to my death arguing for that freedom. So three cheers for SMU. So if the pro-life movement in America was 100% successful, could you describe what that would mean in America? That's a very, very, very pointed and good question. <laughs> It would mean the end of abortions on demand. Let's start there. <clears throat> there would be no more abortions <clears throat> on demand. <clears throat> and in my judgment, this is not everybody who agree with this in the pro-life movement, <clears throat> the number of abortions would be extraordinarily low <clears throat> and only in very special cases. <clears throat> that would be my judgment. <clears throat> That's not got a snowball's chance in hell of succeeding in my generation. <clears throat> But you've got to follow through on the logic of your position at this stage in terms of what's at stake in terms of the future. <laughs> and I, I think the pro-life lobby is, I'm not a politician. I'm an egghead. I'm interested in the underlying philosophical and theological issues that are at stake here. And uh, I'm not going to um, you know, second guess how exactly all this will be translated, A, into policy, and B, into the political arena. But I do know that the outcome would be we would have a lot fewer abortions than we have right now. And I, for one, would be very happy to see that. I think we're done. All right, thank you so much, Dr. Abraham. What a treat that was. And uh, really honored, a great honor to have you here. Um, if y'all would like to talk to him more, he will be at the back selling 
not selling, Logos is here. Rick and Susan Lewis with Logos Bookstore has come with Dr. Abraham's latest book. And he will be signing, and um, you can talk to him back there. But I'd also like to um, say that we have some other very distinguished guests. We have uh, Dr. Turner from SMU and his wife, Gail. Thank you all for being here. And Dean of the Meadows School of the Arts, Sam Holland. So thank you all. Thank you all for being here. And feel free to go to the back and buy a book. And um, that's it. Thank you.